Welcome, dear listeners, to So Very Wrong About Games, a board game podcast about, you guessed it, board games. I'm Mike Walker. I'm here with my good friend, Mark. How are you today, Mark? I'm Will Walker. How are you? Good. Another errata yeah. this week. It's not even just an errata to a game, Walker. It's an errata to my soul and to my life plan. I feel shattered. I, I'm I'm driftless. I just don't know where to go now. It's like there. Then, then Mark wept for there are no more llamas to conquer. It's true. I'll have to take this this burden onto my shoulders, Mark. For I was the one who who explained the rules. Oh, it's fine. And got them wrong. It's fine. They were we in have German. a very we have a very sincere policy here. Well, two sincere policies that are somewhat at odds. Number one, never miss an opportunity to give your co-host a hard time. But number two, never, ever, ever give the rules explainer any guff for missing up a rule unless it seems transparent that they missed it up so as to benefit themselves, in which case you would get the slightest window of an opening. But in this case, it was a sincere error. And and I mean this very sincerely. This is not a joke. This is not sarcasm. Rules explainers are among the most thankless, underappreciated people in the hobby. And they get all the crap for getting everything wrong. And they get no credit for getting things right. So I, for one, wish to make it emphatically clear that the only reason why I was giving Walker a little bit of a hard time was because he's Walker. Not because he got a rule wrong. Getting a rule wrong is human. He introduced us to the game. And so what I say, Walker to you is thank you for teaching me llama dice no problem now how how exactly have my hopes and dreams been crushed so we were playing llama dice where when you went out or took a penalty you take all of the penalty and apparently in in don't llama dice you will only take a penalty for one type of each card so if you penalty with six three sixes you're only going to take the one six as a penalty so we were hoping that someday i could crack a score of 100 alas this is not possible the worst you can do in a given round is 31, and so the highest possible score is 70. Boo. So my previous score, I mean, now keep in mind, just for context, uh, the high scores are bad, and don't let dice just to make that <laughs> right absolutely there. clear. But I was very proud of my 82, but it's not, it was not an 82. It was some, like, it was probably just some piddly little 50-something. That's, yeah. that's, that's gross. Sad. Sad, really. It's sad. Yeah. It's sad. 82 is, is the score of a champion, a genuine titan of loser. But 50-something, then you're just a chump. Yeah. 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 Anyway, we're going to talk about games this week. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And then we're going to talk about our feature game. Our feature game this week is Archeo Society by Paolo Mori. Walker, what did you play last week? Mark, we got a review copy of Race to the Raft. This is a follow-up of Isle of Cats. Apparently, they weren't getting the cats off the island fast enough, so they lit it on fire. So this seems you, like a very you grim to, development. Yes. Yeah, so this that, is the dark second act in a trilogy of cats. So now it's, you really have to get the cats. Now it's do or die. Cats have to get off the island. Yeah. Or they like implicitly they burn to death. Yeah. It's pretty grim. It's, it's kind of dark the moment you start poking at it. Anyway, this is, it basically it's a tile laying game. It so happens that it uses cards, but you're trying to create paths to get a cat of a certain color so that it will travel only on squares of that color to get to a raft. And it is a pure co-op with somewhat weird communication restrictions. You're not allowed to be very detailed about what's in your cards. You can say, well, this card is good for red, or real good for red. And I don't want to echo the sentiments of David Serlin whenever I can avoid it, but he did point out that sometimes communication restrictions like that get very artificial and can be broken down, especially if you say, well... 
is three good and four to five very good and nonsense like that. Anyway, I don't like communications of that ilk. Ever since Shadows Over Camelot, I found it strange and weird, but there's that. Right. right out of the way. Most prevalent in Gloomhaven, but moving on. So Also have- prevalent in Gloomhaven. How fast are you going? I'm 12-ish fast. Or, or I really need to open up the next door. Yes. But anyway, <laughs> this has sort of like conflicting tile placement things because you have, uh, you're trying to make paths. And to make these paths, you have these square cards. And sometimes you have to place them in a way that covers up part of the path, but initially makes the beginning of the path better. So it's this weird sort of manipulating the tiles. And after you place that, you're playing actual Tetris tiles that are the, that represents the fire. Well, not Tetris tiles. They vary in size considerably. I suppose. Yes. Cause Tetris tiles are always four. They, they differ both in shape and size. Yes. So, so yes, sort all sorts of weird Tetris like shapes and they all have to, you know, sort of, they have to touch fire and, and so you're placing them in the way you have to, it's this sort of balance you're trying to get the cats enough forward that you can fill in behind them with fire. My my biggest substantive critique so far of Race of the Raft is, and we've commented on this before, you only have one chance to make a first impression. And it tells you to go through this tutorial sequence. And it then tries to say, well, if you found the tutorial too easy, then jump to this campaign. But it does tell you to do the, the, the tutorial first. And especially in the context of review copies, we're inclined to take things at face value. And I'm always dubious about flat out ignoring what's in the rulebook because I always wonder in the back of my head, maybe this is the one in one in a million time when they actually mean it. It's pretty repetitive as far as the tutorial goes. It didn't really offer much of a challenge. Now, the first scenario of the campaign it suggests you jump to, which is your fifth session if you find the tutorial too easy, looks much more interesting. We have not yet played that scenario yet. I'd be inclined to give it a try. Uh, but I just, I, I really hate it when the scenario systems don't show the game off to its best advantage in the first first impression. Well, I think it's hard to play itself off as a family game. So people who are not so inclined to board games probably would very much enjoy this slow ramping up of the different mechanisms. Certainly. But I think then what they ought to have done is not say, play through this tutorial. And if you find the tutorial too easy, go to this campaign. They should say, make the tutorial not four scenarios, make it one scenario and say, if you found this challenging, go to the next tutorial. If you didn't find this challenging, here you go, play the re- the quote-unquote real game. Agreed. Now, I don't even know if it is the quote-unquote real game. I don't know. But as I say, you're left in these doubts with these scenario-based games if the initial scenarios aren't what you want them to be. Anyway, bracketing that aside, it is a very charming tile-laying game where there's this evolving spatial puzzle. And that part, absent the artificial communication restrictions, I found delightful. I too enjoyed it. And like you said, and I'm wondering if it it would play very well as sort of like a puzzly solo game as well. Absolutely. Right? Because it's, it's very much, you know, it's very quarterbacky and. Well, no, with, I, with, I with, disagree. With the silly communication rules. I disagree. Because of the hidden hands, I don't think it's very quarterbacky yeah. at all. What I will say, though, is that as a special puzzle, the extra players don't really add anything substantive in terms of the yeah. interaction between the players. You do have your own hand, and you're the one responsible for playing those cards, and all the cards have to be played. And the game is very clear insofar as it's prohibiting other players from telling you how to play your hand. But the fundamental elements of the game don't change based on the number of players at the table. And so, yes, I I, I agree that it is very, very amenable to solo play. And that is Race to the Raft. Designed by Frank West and put out by the City of Games. Now, on the topic of cooperative tile layers... I have no idea what game you're going to lead to next. We immediately played after that Dorf 
Oh, you can do this. Dorfoman. Roman. Romac. I did. You know? Yeah. Mark? Yeah. I sat today. Uh-huh. When I put this in here. Mm-hmm. And said the word out loud four times. Mm-hmm. Because I've been being silly with it because for so then long. It <laughs> yeah. That I, I don't even remember how to say it anymore. We played Dorf Romantic. There you go, Walker. The board game. No, this that's... is designed by Michael Palm and Lucas Zack and put out by Pegaspiel. I have no idea why you're linking the two, other than the fact that they are both pure co-op tiling games. They have nothing in common whatsoever. I, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> other than the fact that they're fundamentally the same genre of game. Yes, yes. They're, they're clearly linked. Dorf Romantic caught off its SDJ win. And indeed, we, we just finished playing Race to the Raft. And so I immediately thought, oh, let's let's pull out Dorf Romantic again. <laughs> exactly. We played two games of it in a row, much like we played, was it three? I think we played three of Race to the Raft, but anyway. I actually uh, exercised a bit of editorial discretion and caused us to skip one of the tutorial scenarios because I could tell that it was getting a little repetitive. And we had very different experiences in both the games of Dorf Mantic. And so one was very bad where the, the sort of the random draw came up very much not in our favor. Yes. And in the second game, the exact opposite, where we ran the table and put everything out. And I thought it was very, very interesting. I really like how much it captures the feel of the video game. And I'm looking forward to uh, opening up more special boxes. Never having played the video game, I'm not in a position to comment. I did find it interesting in that both the rather frustratingly bad draws and the very, very good draws and great success, neither of those negatively impacted my enjoyment of the individual session. That having been said, Dorf Romantic basically has this structure whereby every game is a score attack. You don't win or lose a game of Dorf Romantic. Instead, you just try to score as many points as you can that will progress you along some sort of weird campaign system that will gradually unlock new toys with which to play. And I don't really like campaign systems, but it doesn't feel like a campaign system. It just feels like a way to introduce new stuff, which works out very well. And the score attack element of it is not ideal, but as a vehicle to facilitate the former element, I think it's all right. Very much like Race to the Raft, the fundamental structure of Dorf Romantic is going to be identical regardless of the number of players. We played this time with four, and I don't know. I said, when we played with three, I said I wouldn't want to play with more. I'm not really sure what the ideal player count is. I think it's probably better with less. I, You know, I think back to, to, to our, our uh, various other sessions of co-op games. I think two might be the ideal part because there at least there's someone to bounce ideas off of, but you're still playing half the game. Four didn't feel like it was pushing it too much. But again, the lack of individual agency, because you flip over a tile and then everyone kibbutzes about where to place the tile and... It's, this is not a an alpha gaming or quarterbacking problem. It's just to what extent does an individual player feel like they're having a tangible stake in the game? And in that sense, I think Race of the Raft is superior in that you have your individual hand of cards and your individual draws matter. What I like about Dwarf Romantic is the fact that there's not always the the best choice. There is different like strategies. It's either, you know, do we want to push this particular objective so we can get more objective cards out or do we want to go for the longest road longest river or do we want to set up for other things i like how there's not always the best play i'm inclined to agree there's a fair amount of risk taking based in part of your uncertain recollection of the tile mix i feel like if you wanted to be a real tryhard with respect to dwarf romantic you'd want to have the tile mix in mind i remember in fact during the early days of kakasan before the first expansion 
that was one of the serious problems. Like there were certain kinds of configurations that were shockingly rare in the overall tile mix. And so you'd set something up that you'd think you'd be able to finish, but then that tile just doesn't exist. I'm not saying that that problem exists in Dorf Romantic, but if, in order to really maximize the score where we inclined, I feel like we'd have to know for a fact, like you look at the stack of tiles and say, how many more railroads are we going to have? I don't know. I don't remember. I'm not inclined to count. So the fact that it's very light, very approachable family level co-op, pleasant experience is for the good, because if it, were a little sweaty or competitive, uh, the tile mix issues would start rearing their heads. Yeah, so to to compare the two, I very much enjoy both of them. They have their strengths and their weaknesses, but I find uh, thus far uh, Dorf Romantic's overall structure to be preferable in the way and pace at which it introduces new elements. Race to the Raft, as I say, I think the tutorial didn't do it any favors. I'm looking forward to the advanced, quote-unquote, advanced uh, campaigns. Although I should stress, in terms of scenarios, in Race to the Raft, there is a dizzying number. There is a large number of possible board setups. And even in there, there's random tile placement elements that will change the specific geography of the map. So I, in short, look forward in the next few weeks to our coming back to Race to the Raft with, with more mature recollections. But I'm happy to play either of the two relatively light cooperative tile layers that we have in our collection that have been released recently. The one time with the, the with multiple plays of Dwarf Mantic, I'm not liking the art. I think they really oh, dropped really? I think they just really dropped the ball on the art on the tiles. When hmm. you compare it to the video game and we compare it to Carcassonne tiles, they just seem very washed out and bland. I think they could huh. have made it way more charming if they had just locked down the art a little better. It is very simple. I think that's, it definitely facilitates pattern recognition and being able to understand what fits with what. But I suppose I hadn't thought about it in those terms. I mean, Cacosun is is very, very attractive. I don't think that that's a, a bar that many games are going to reach. But I hear your criticism. That is Dorf Romantic, the board game by Pegasus Spiel. I get to return to Too Many Bones. Specifically, I get to return to Too Many Bones Dart. Dart is a character that actually... Uh, helped cure me of my too many bones completionism because I had some bad experiences with her in the initial playings. Dart is a very strange character in that she exhausts her attack dice far more than other characters do. There's this notion of exhausting dice in too many bones. Some dice you can keep reusing and some you can only use once, once per encounter. Generally, attack dice can be reused. She can't, as whenever she uses uh, most of her special abilities. And so I always felt this tension between doing cool things and having some sense of longevity. But this time I really decided to lean in to her tricks because I, I kind of had the intuition upon revisiting her rule set that she was being designed to counter one of the common criticisms of Too Many Bones' development path. The idea being that it is often optimal in terms of strategic play to just buff up your dexterity, your attack, and your defense, and to go crush things and not mess around with the special abilities that each gear lock can have, all the special unique effects dice. And her limitations, both in terms of the way her attack dice work and the way her other abilities work, seek to address that. You cannot do well with Dart just by buffing up your attack stat. You are obliged, in order to make her effective, to use her other uh, effects. And so I really leaned into that, and I tried to think carefully about how to develop her as, uh, and use all my training points and all the development aspects of the pseudo-RPG elements of Too Many Bones. And I had a really good time with her. I, I, I've completely changed my mind 
about Dart from some initial bad experiences because I, I do think that the designers, Adam Carlson and Josh Carlson, were making Dart to sort of evolve a kind of meta, and it doesn't really have a meta conventional sense, but okay, these characters can sometimes suffer from these defects. Let's design a character to spec that cannot fall into that particular kind of pattern. And I think they did a great job. And it's making me very curious to see how the characters from Unbreakable, which is the newest set, work. As I said, I, I've, I've been cured of my completionism. I didn't pledge for the latest Kickstarter, but I'm now in a position where I am, if I had, if I could try the new characters, I definitely would. I'd cure, possibly try to get it in trade. We'll see what happens. I'm not willing to sink another few hundred dollars into Too Many Bones. I've got a lot of money in Too Many Bones as it is. I've got the Trove Chest and a lot of the content released here too for. But I, I, I'm impressed with the design chops in the team for the first time in a while. Which is not to say that I found the design work unimpressive, it's just that I didn't necessarily see them trying to evolve the game state in the way that Dart seems to do. So, sat down with Huey and we played a, uh, a game of Undertow against a thoroughly obnoxious adversary who basically just winds you to death, which is... Oh, oh man, you hate this character so much that by the end of the campaign, when it's time to, to, to give them the old steel handshake to the face... Oh, you're ready to put that sucker down. Oh my goodness. It was so satisfying. Now, granted, he 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 died like the punk that he was, whining all the way, but you know, it's alright. You'll you'll take the W where you can. And so I have to say that the you know the writing was 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 solid, not spectacular, but definitely solid. And as I say, I'm I'm appreciating some of the design work, or at least starting to see some of the rationales for some of the new design elements in the later too, uh, too many bones content, the stuff that was released with the the previous Kickstarter, not the one being released right now with Unbreakable. So that is too many bones, specifically the Dart character, and specifically the Undertow campaign designed by Adam Carlson and Josh Carlson of Chip Theory Games. Speaking of specifically, Mark, we are 0 for 2 in specifically Troops on a Map game re-implemented from a I know. previous better game. So yes. we've tried yuck a tan. This is <laughs> Oh, I see what you did there. The newest design that was supposed to be Kemet sort of Well not supposed Kemet to be light. Half the half of the design team of Kemet designed Yucatan, yes. And same publisher. And then we tried this week we tried Lords of Ragnarok, which was supposed to be a re reimplementation of Lords of Hellas. And I really I was really hoping for a different game. And I don't want to say it was the exact same game because Lords of Hellas is much better. But <laughs> But I just wanted, I wanted different. It was just like same thing, but with a lot of all the things that make Lords of Hellas fun taken away. Like the troops on the map were gone. Now you had a single figure with a dial on the bottom cranking up sure. how, what its value. And all of the fights we had were always complete blowouts, usually. It was yes. either six versus one or eight versus two, whatever. Where in Lords of Hellas, you'll, you're going to get in those fights that are one-on-one -on -one or two-on-one. Because of the cards make so much difference. This doesn't happen in Lords of Ragnarok because the map is so much smaller. Oh, I don't know if it's the size of the map. I agree with you that the effect of the troop changes serve to make massing large amounts of force easier. It also makes defending your borders much more difficult. So you have these powerful entities that move by themselves, but you have fewer of them. So whereas in Lords of Hellas, it's very easy to sprinkle troops all over, the, all over the place and offer at least a token defense of all your territories, and that would facilitate one of the victory conditions, namely controlling a certain number of lands, which is a group of regions, eh, not the best terminology. But in Lords of Ragnarok, you have many fewer of them, but they all move much faster. 
And so as a consequence, attacking is pretty easy. You just have to find the weak point and apply a great deal of pressure. I find Lords of Ragnarok more frustrating than you do because I actually think there are elements of the design that are superior to Lords of Hellas. Very much like how Dart seeks to address some of the potential design problems or some of the criticisms of a very, very good game. I think that Lords of Ragnarok had some great ideas. Like, for example, the fundamental structure about how to hunt monsters has become just vastly better. In Lords of Hellas, one of the victory conditions is to kill three monsters. Only the person who delivers the death blow gets any credit. And so you can throw yourself against a brick wall thinking that you're going to kill the monster, not be able to take it that last inch by virtue of bad draws. And then somebody else can look over and say, oh, all right, and do one wound and win. Here, that's been totally changed. However, with one step forward, they've been taking three steps back. In order to get the monster victory in Lords of Ragnarok, this is just an example, you have to kill two monsters or have done at least four or more wounds to monsters that then get killed by somebody else to two monsters and then kill the boss. And the boss in the base game with the expansion so far is either going to be Loki or it's going to be Fenris. Okay, fine. Fenris representation, I approve. But no one has reported successfully killing Loki. It seems not impossible, but really unlikely to ever be able to kill Loki because you have to kill him all in one shot. He heals between encounters, which, again, seeks to resolve some of the problems of the original design. So that's not only one of the victory conditions they made more difficult. They also made... Uh, all of them more difficult. The other one yes. is to get uh, control three lands now, which with, with this... Again, you can't defend your borders, with so... With this condensed map is almost impossible. The other, They've taken out the one where you need to complete a monument, and... Well, it's been replaced with Ragnarok. Which is, I think, it feels as though that's what they intend you to get to every time. It certainly seems like the most plausible things. end of the game. That's one of the other sure. ones is controlling five temples, temples which also is nearly impossible. There are fewer temples in Lords of Ragnarok than there were in Lords of Alice as a general rule. So when some of these things are close to being completed, you are flipping over these cards from Ragnarok. And when enough of them are flipped over, then Ragnarok's going to happen, and whoever controls these five territories that surround the center, whoever controls the most of them, is going to be the winner. And that's, here comes the king-making aspect <laughs> of the game. Yeah. Because it's just... You know, you got to try to win, and you're either going to weaken somebody. So, and the turn order is so ridiculous at this yes. point. The fundamental way that you control tempo in both Lords of Ragnarok and Lords of Hellas is by taking the build monument action. That's the way you control the tempo of the game in a fundamental way. In Lords of Ragnarok, you frequently are unable to do this action when you want to. There was this instance where the person to my right was pushing for that Ragnarok victory, and he did indeed win, so it was it was proper of him to do so. And in order for me to stop him from doing that, one of the key ways for me to do that was to take the build act monument action myself. But every time he takes the build monument action, the prerequisites for my taking the build act monument action get removed from the board. So the only way for me to do that is for two full rounds of the game to go by with nobody taking the build monument action, and then I can do it. So that never happened. I was never in a position to do it when I wanted to do it. And on top of that, even the visual appeal of the game has taken a serious step back from Lords of Hellas. It's the sea of bronzy gray. Like on an individual level, the miniatures look amazing. You set up the map and everything just becomes this indistinct, dark smudge of muddy haze. And every for every step... There, lots of interesting things get got changed, like the monster's condition. The attributes of the heroes, I think, are much, much better in Lords of Ragnarok than they were in Lords of Hellas. But every step forward, there were two steps back. And now what used to be 
a somewhat wacky in some corner cases and potentially a little bit fragile in some cases, again, especially monsters, but in other contexts as well, game with lots of interesting interlocking moving parts and variable victory conditions, Lords of Hellas, has now become this overlong, grindy, procedural, visual, and gameplay mess that is painful, doubly so in comparison with Lords of Hellas, that doesn't really have many viable victory conditions, and so you're just limping towards the end. This is one of my biggest disappointments over the past couple of years. Now, granted, I kind of saw this coming. I kind of got the impression that Adam Kopinski and I, I was giving him far too much credit on the basis of, A, the excellent writing in Tainted Grail, which wasn't really his doing, it was the team of writers, and B, Lords of Hellas. I think he's, I, in my head, he's now squarely a one-hit wonder, and I am done with Awakened Realms. Finished finito. They are completely in the do-not-trust category. They don't deserve any of my money, because their designs have been, other than Lords of Hellas and Tainted Grail's excellent writing, universally disappointing. I have feelings about Lords of Ragnarok, Walker. Apparently. Also, also, I should have stood on my own principles. Do you know who stood on his own principles, Walker? Tear. No tear, no Hashtag sale. Hashtag no tear, no sale. I violated my own principles, and this is what I get for it. Yeah, this, that's 100% your fault. Good news is that we can implement some of these changes into Lords of Hellas. And, Possibly, yeah. And I think it will fix some of the problems, which is great. Yeah, I think the monster killing thing could yeah. be backported. Probably. And you might even be able to backport the boss killing mechanism whereby you say the third monster you kill, you have to kill in one go. Maybe? Yeah, we'll take a look. Anyway, it, it, it's worth thinking about because we definitely want to go back to Lords of Hellas now. Cause... Yes. <laughs> yeah, they very much made it like a, a Kemet or a Yucatan where, where the territory didn't matter because they also introdu- introduced boats in these vast sea zones so you could almost get anywhere you wanted to. It just seems so... After reading the rules and looking at the board for the first time, I was genuinely surprised to see how huge those sea zones really are. Yeah, you can. Now, in fairness, again, this is a one step forward, two steps back situation, because in a Troops on a Map game, you want to make sure that as much as possible, any individual player can attack any other individual player. Lords of Hellas sometimes had you in a position where you could not attack the person you wanted to attack. Lords of Ragnarok fixes that problem, but... In so doing, ruins the the balance between victory conditions. So, flaws and all, Lords of Hellas still stands head and shoulders above that thing. Ugh, I feel dirty just thinking about it. It was was disappointing. It was disappointing. That is Lords of Ragnarok by Awaken Realms. This is is an episode of Solid Segways, Walker. Let's talk about the end of the world. Let's talk about Blood Rage. Got to play Blood Rage, and for the first time, got to play with some of the new elements from the promos box. So, in 2019, Cool Money or Not re-released the Kickstarter exclusives under a different name. For those of you that could not get Fenris, there was Garm. Garm, let, let's acknowledge. I mean, no, no shade on people with Garm. Garm, at best, is a third-tier mythological wolf. All right? There, I said it. Send your all your hate mail to support at aircanada.ca. I stand by my principles. It also had these gorgeous golden gods for a variant that isn't even really very good. But at any rate, they also introduced three new monsters that had not been seen heretofore. One of them is Emir. Did not use Emir because Emir gets stronger based on how many figures you have in Valhalla. It is already the case that the Loki strategy tends to predominate in our local groups anyway, so I figured I'd shell that. But we have Nidhogg. Gotta have Nidhogg. Solid dragon. And also a boar that dislodges people. So anyway, played with a couple of new elements that had not been 
in their heretofore and had a great time with it. I mean, every time we play Blood Rage, I'm thinking, why don't I play Blood Rage more often? The drafting doesn't have a whole lot of subtlety and nuance. It's mostly just what a, among these toys, what are the ones I most want? But the actual uh, card play, the action selection, the economic management, the, the tempo, the, the temp, the time. It is yeah. so much about timing. The more I play Blood Rage, the more I, 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 I seek to appreciate the timing. You think, oh, I've got all the time and I can play this quest whenever I want to. It's just, it's a no-cost action. I can do it later. I'll leave it to the end. I'll leave it to the end. Oh, the round's going to end? Oh, crap. But there's three things I've got to do now. Oh, no. Oh, no. Uh, the subtlety of forcing a battle where the opponent has to burn a card. The situation, it's a classic Eric Lang thing, right? Starting a fight that you know you're going to lose... <laughs> Because you, either you want to lose it or you know that the pain of winning it on the part of the opponent is so much worse. Love me some Blood Rage. Liked the promos. They had a mild but interesting effect on the overall course of the game. And they have lovely sculpts, so hey. And Blood Rage has aged well. There are rumblings, of course. Eric Lang has said on social media that he has been, through the years, working on an expansion to Blood Rage, about which he is very, very enthusiastic. And I, for one, can't wait to see what it is. Blood Rage. Eric Lang. Eric Lang back with Simon. That'd be interesting. Well, he worked with Ankh. He, he, he did, did Ankh after know, he I'm not it. saying it would be on... I'm just saying that yeah. back. Sure. All right. So we stream every Saturday. This week, we streamed Project Elite, the newest edition, the CMON edition that came out in 2020. First edition came out by Artipia Games. This is the new with a billion characters and tons of plastic. Well, yeah. If you have a billion characters, there's going to be like a metric ton of plastic. Just so. Yeah. So this is a real-time sort of I don't want to say tower, tower defensey, space hulky, the closest to playing with your dollies in the sand that you can get to. <laughs> it's sort of like you know streamlined rules for you to play with with your guys on the map. Now, I, I I have to say that closest to just mashing people and making destructo noises. I, I think Heroescape definitely takes one up for that. True, honestly, no project, which is not a criticism. Project Lead is a great game. Uh, but most of the time, you don't even have the time to appreciate your dollies because you're frantically moving things around and cursing your dice. Yes, yeah, so you're rolling dice. They're very basic rules. Either you're moving or you're shooting or you're, you're searching certain items to upgrade your weapons. Uh, or you're rolling the dreaded red side, which is the alien side, and they've just cut the rules down during this two-minute phase where all you need to do is move one of the aliens one space forward. They have this sort of track that they have to follow, and that's one of the lost conditions. Either they're going to make it into your base, or one of the people are going to die, or you're going to run out of time because there's only eight rounds in the game. And so the game's only going to last 16 minutes because each round is only two minutes long. Well, that's a bit of an exaggeration. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right to highlight that when you're going to make a co-op real-time game, especially when it's that frenetic and the round is two minutes long, some real-time games, again, Millennium Blades comes to mind, the time pressure isn't there to make you rush as fast as possible. It's just to keep the pace moving. Project Elite is not that kind of game. You will run out of time every time. And they really knew when to keep things super simple. And if the alien movement had even one or two steps more complexity, I don't think Project Elite would work. Certainly not as well as it is. But Project Elite works because it knows where to put its relatively low load of rules complexity, but certainly never in the middle of figuring out how enemies are going to move. Yeah, like even putting damage on bosses is just scraping the surface of making things a little too... Right, too paperworky. Right, and and I love how the and your dice slowly disappear because you're trying to get these objectives, and some of your weapons lock in dice, the objectives lock in dice, and just 
knowing make, when to do that. Yeah, absolutely. making the decision of when to do that in the two minutes. I enjoyed Project Elite every time it was on my list for the pa-pa-pa-pa as one of the best cooperative games that I enjoy. Project Elite. Yeah, so solid, solid selection. And I I kind of missed that I wasn't able to join in on, on that stream. I would very happily play Project Elite any day of the week. Sat down for some solo gaming, and I decided to play One Deck Galaxy by Chris Chazak at Asmati Games. Now, full disclosure, I'm a personal friend of Chris. One of the reasons why I wanted to pull out One Deck Galaxy again, not just because I enjoy the game, I've played it before, was because there's a lot of chatter online that the rulebook is very bad and people don't know how the game works. And in part, I had this moment of cognitive dissonance, thinking, well, I mean, it was it's it's very different from One Deck Dungeon, despite being superficially very similar, but I, I didn't have any particular difficulty in navigating the rules. So I went back to the original rules document. There's a new rules book available that is meant to address some of the criticism. I went to the original one as published that people say is incomprehensible. And I didn't have any problems with it. Again, this is not, I I think, to the best of my understanding, this is not me trying to stick up for my friend. I think this is a genuine curiosity about what other people find so complicated. I think part of the reason why is because in the context of a cooperative game or in a solo game, I am a little bit more willing to take the prima facie plausible explanation as the workable one and then go forward. So sometimes that prevents genuine rules confusion. But we've been in that position before. We're playing a co-op game, and we can't find the answer to a rule. And we go, okay, well, we'll just do it this way and go forward and maybe find the answer later. And the threshold for our willingness to do that is far lower in a co-op game than it is for a competitive game. I didn't even get to that point in the context of One Deck Galaxy. It's just, oh, that, that I think is how this works. Let's move on. And... Uh, the only serious uh, shortcoming I have with One Deck Galaxy is there's a lot of tucking going on. Asmati Games has published a lot of games with tucking, primarily by Carl Chuddick, but also by sometimes by Chris. You're tucking cards into this, cards into here are ships, and there are the science, and here are the progress, and here are the threat, and you're just tucking cards all over the place. And eventually, I get a little bit tired, and I started making piles. It's like, no, no tucking anymore. We're getting piles of cards off to the side. And I... It is a much more deliberative, much more strategic as opposed to tactical game than One Deck Galaxy, but still has a lot of personality and a lot of, it's a very quirky universe that we inhabit. For example, I played as the Plum Plum, which are basic, they basically look like a race of sapient radishes. These small, rotund, actually, I don't know what, what scale they are. I have to be careful. Ever since I discovered that the uh, pheromone dinosaurs in Sidereal Confluence are roughly the size of a dog, it is important to understand that you don't know the scale of these. Plumplin could be 10, 10 feet tall. I don't know. They look awfully small and cute, though. And I was playing against an adversary that put out these bizarre experiments that I had to throw science at to get rid of. Anyway, it was an interesting effect of the economy. I had a great time. I really enjoy One Deck Galaxy. It is definitely something I pull out when I want something a little bit longer and more involved in One Deck Dungeon, which is not saying a whole heck of a lot. We're talking about, therefore, a 45 to 60 minute experience as opposed to 30 to 45 minute experience, say. But I really enjoy it, and the variety is very nice. The adversaries make things considerably difficult, and the dice management is very pleasant. So, again, I I find the rules reasonably straightforward. I don't know what's going on. So, One Deck Galaxy by Chris Cheslick and Asmati Games. If you're a fan of solo games, I recommend it. So, Cyclades is on Kickstarter right now, and it has a fundamental mechanic, auction mechanic, where you bid on a god, and then if you're outbid, then you're bumped out on your next turn. When it comes around to your turn, you must go to a different god. We played a game that is very similar, 
It's called Amon Ray. This is the twenty the twentieth anniversary edition by Alley Cat Games, and this one's by Reiner Knizia. And you're and you're bidding on different plots of land, I guess you could say regions, yeah, regions on the map. And it's much the same thing. You're there are five players. There's going to be five regions. Uh, everyone's going to get one, but you're slowly outbidding each other until everyone is quote unquote happy. <laughs> yeah, that's the term that I use. It is very figurative in nature. It's out of that actual happiness, just at the point where no one has any more complaints. <laughs> and I think in Cyclades, that is, for me, it's one of the most important, most interesting parts of the game. It's oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. How much you're willing to pay, uh, how much you can bump up your opponents, because at the, for this particular turn, you don't care which god you get. You are you have options to do what you need other ways, so you're just forcing them to spend more money, and then you just drop down and spend nothing. This happens also in Amun Ray. I really enjoyed my playing of it. Mark, what do you think? So it's interesting that you make the comparison with Cyclades, and I think that some of the comparisons are illustrative. I prefer Amon Ray to Cyclades largely on the basis that the incredibly tight money management doesn't relate in the same way to the fundamental actions of the game. Say for the sake of argument in Cyclades. Now, granted, I will freely grant that if you're in this position, you've done made a mistake, right? But say you need to move some of your units, Unless you win Poseidon or Ares, nobody's going anywhere. There's nothing you can do about that. Everything is funneled through this auction. So the auction becomes incredibly high stakes, and the money is extraordinarily tight. Amun Ray, the money is still tight, and the auctions still matter, but I feel that the economy is more tailored to my personal preferences. This is purely a taste issue. I like tight money in auction games. I don't like when money is that tight in auction games. And in addition to being able to be somewhat flexible in terms of what provinces you win, you can also change your mind about how you're going to be pursuing your other broader point goals. So, oh, can't get the region with the pyramids. Maybe try to go for a region with temples. Maybe that'll get you where you want to go. Well, I guess I'm not going to be buying many cards this turn. Better go for more farmers, etc. So the changes to Amun Ray. So Amun Ray, Tigers and Euphrates, and Taj Mahal are kind of the three heaviest Reiner Knizia games, and they're all released within about uh, a, a five-year period of each other, right around the turn of the century. Still seems strange saying that, but it is what it is. And initially, I did not appreciate Amun Ray, but the new edition, I think, is a substantial improvement. There are two big things that it has introduced. Number one, it has rebalanced and fixed a lot of the favor cards for schemes, which are the ones that give you points. In the original Amun Ray, they were a little bit all over the place. You could luck into weird draws or luck out of big draws. They were very consequential. Here, I think that schemes have been toned down and simplified. Yeah, I could, I could see where the ticket to ride problem would come in. In the last turn, you just try to grab as many cards and hope you luck into. But they're so scarce and they're so of little points and so precise that right. it's very uncommon that you're going to be able to do that. Right. Now you can try to build into them and, and hope that over the course of the rounds, you'll pull what you need, but you're probably not just going to stumble into some sort of windfall. Absolutely. Just so. The second thing that's changed, well, I mean, obviously the arts changed more on that in a second, but the second big thing that's changed is that there are now these new expansion modules. Most of them I'm willing to, mo to, to ignore, but, uh, Amun Ray was definitely mentioned in the same context as El Grande in that, and uh, Princes of the Renaissance, Princes of Florence, for what it's worth, as being those euros that you should only play with five. If you play with less, bad idea. And I think to a certain extent that's an exaggeration. I would happily play El Grande with four. I would happily play 
uh, Princes of Florence with fewer, and I'd also happily play Amon Ray with four, but two or three, eh, there you're really starting to push it. The new module, though, I haven't played it yet. It looks fascinating. With two or three players, what you can do is bid on two provinces simultaneously every round. One of them you keep as property, the other gives you a kind of Benny, and you only decide after the auctions are entirely done which one you're going to keep as which because each province is going to have the two options. And this means that the real estate will be as dense when during the bidding rounds. And that seems like a positive advance. Seems very promising, anyway, for what it's worth. The new art is now Vincent Dutre instead of Franz Vowinkel. I think those are the two, arguably the two greatest Euro artists in uh, recent history. And so I'm very, very happy with both art sets. I will just note, as a, as a final joke, though, one thing that I find very strange about the cover of Amun Ray is that the farmer who's tilling the fields on the cover looks very happy. And I'm not saying that farmers aren't can't be happy people. It's just he's got a big grin on while he's involved in the manual labor. And I have to assume that it's because they got the memo that people don't want frowny Euro games anymore. <laughs> hey, he knew his picture day. Yeah, exactly. He knew his picture day. He knew that the Vincent was hiding in the reeds, drawing him next to the Nile. And so he put on a big sunny smile. And I have to assume that this is just an antidote to the standard frowny Euro face. Anyway, if you've never played Amon Ray before, I highly recommend you give it a shot. It's a classic for a reason. And this new edition, I think, is the best version that it's ever had. Yeah, they've colored the cards. Like, each phase has a color coding. Yes. And all the cards that you draw are, are coded to what phase they're allowed to be played in. So if you know it's the harvest phase, you just look at your hand and say, all the green, you know, I can play my green cards. If I don't play them now, then I won't get to play them. So yeah. You, yes. there, were, there were no questions and not much rulebook referencing for, as far as the special action cards were concerned, which was very impressive. And the money management is... Again, tight, but not so tight that I feel overly constrained. And I think this is really a winner. It's, it's completely improved my impression of Amun Ray. And I think that it is now, it you know, solidly deserves its status as as the, the classic it's always been. That's Amun Ray, the 20th Century Edition by Rena Knizia, fulfilled this year after successful crowdfunding by Alley Cat Games. I would also like to note that this is sort of the historical sequel to Ankh. I, I keep trying to tell people, both in this podcast and in actual play, that Ankh is about the evolution of Egypt into a quasi-monotheistic state. And the winner of that contest was Amun-Re, when Amun and Ra were combined together. As is evident from the, the scripture, all gods are three, Amun, Ra, and Ta, whom none equals. He who hides his name as Amun, he appears to the face as Ra, his body is Ta. Mm-hmm. And they all get in my, my cross and no, look, the joke for giant robots would clearly be Voltron, Walker. There are no combining robots in Macross. This would obviously be a, a Voltron reference. I'm, I'm so silly. <laughs> <laughs> Next time, think before you speak, okay? Lastly for me is Cthulhu Death May Die. This design by Rob Devio and Eric M. Lang, put out by Simon, and it is a great little cooperative game. I don't want to see like their mini games, but the way that they put all these different sort of mechanics in every map and make, you know, each play different. Each, I, each scenario yeah. is very, very different. It has its own special actions, its own victory conditions, its own decks of cards for what's fundamentally driving it. Yeah, the modularity is, is extraordinarily well done in Cthulhu Death May Die. This time, sadly, we were not strapping dynamite to moose. But you can't do that every time. No. We were instead manipulating mirrors so as to shunt moonlight into the observatory, which was not particularly physically possible, but it was cute mechanically. Yeah, for those who watch Legend, you know all about it. 
directing sunlight <laughs> down into the dungeons is is what what Tom Cruise is all about. <laughs> so we played against Dagon. Uh, one of the mechanical criticisms of Cthulhu: Death May Die, but really. It's such glorious stupidity. Focusing on the mechanism seems kind of beside the point. But one of the me- the mechanical criticisms is as you get to higher player counts, the difficulty can spike rather alarmingly. We played against Dagon, uh, and Dagon kind of inverts that. Dagon's corruption mechanism, he starts to change you into a fish person. And the more people you have, the more fish there is to convert. And so it kind of dilutes, no pun intended, that overall effect. And so we were playing with four. It was actually a random suggestion, but after somebody randomly suggested Dagon, I'm like, oh yeah, actually, since we're four, that makes more sense. And it was it was perfectly cinematic. We all died one by one at the hands of Dagon until finally uh, Rasputin, actually, Ra-Ra Rasputin, lover of the Russian queen, managed to finish Dagon, uh, Dagon off on the last blow over the corpses of the rest of the other investigators. Well, much like every game, of, at least that I've played of, <laughs> of Cthulhu Messi Die, it always comes down to the big, you know, throwdown at the end where half the party dies and and, and the last you know, sure, one I or d- two survivors, you know, crush the... I don't remember the people typically falling like dominoes quite at that rate, though. <laughs> it was True. like, dead, dead, dead victory. <laughs> it, was, it was very bloody. So Cthulhu Death May Die is absolutely one of our favorite stupid co-op plasticky games. It's not purely a combat-a-thon. It ends up turning into a combat-a-thon near the end, but it's not like Street Masters where all you're doing is fighting or Sentinels or, or what have you. There's a little bit of moving around and, and a little bit of intrigue and quasi-exploration and resource management. Uh, but honestly, its take on the theme, absent, uh, with the exception of its problematic representation of mental illness, is such gloria- glorious subversion of the problematic tropes of Cthulhu and of H.P. Lovecraft. It's it's really, really good. I'm looking forward to season three, which will be fulfilling, I don't know, in 2D20 months, probably. <laughs> and uh, we'll see when that happens. That's Cthulhu Death May Die by Eric Lang and Rob Daviau. Those are the games we played last week. Now on to a brief break while we pay some bills. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And we're back to So Very Wrong About Games. Now onto the news and why it doesn't matter. Well, Mark, Chinatown, they say it's hard to get. So the designer has made a new game that's supposed to tone it down a little, revamp it slightly. It's going to be called Waterfall Park. Yeah, I don't understand. I I I just like to echo a comment that I've heard frequently online. How do you make Chinatown substantially simpler? I'm not sure. I'm not saying it's the simplest game ever, but it's pretty straightforward as far as these things go maybe they just manipulate the the transactional the the way you sort of i don't know make deals maybe i don't know i've never been a massive fan of chinatown largely by virtue of the fact of how calculational it gets in the last couple of rounds like you know exactly what things are worth and i don't like negotiation games where the value of any given piece of property can be calculated that precisely for that period of the game i think you need a little bit more asymmetry i think you need a little bit more grist for the negotiation mill uh, but it's it's absolutely a classic, and it's very, very out of print, so I'm glad it's coming back in some form anyway. So we've talked about Invincible. It's an animated series on Amazon. 
And they're going to get a hero deck building game for Invincible. Okay. Shrug indeed. Let's let's hope the cards aren't as gory as the show. Because <laughs> that would be a little off-putting. It would, uh, yeah. <laughs> it would be something, all right. Have you read the comic? I have not. The comic is considerably toned down when compared to the show. I don't know who it was that was responsible for the adaptation of the show, but they definitely like, mm, I can turn this up to 11. <laughs> Not enough, and they did. Not enough flying eyeballs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, that having been said, uh, I highly recommend the cartoon if you if you like sort of, uh, I guess, post superhero kind of yeah, very, construction uh, of kind uh, of very Watchmen like. How so? Well, just mean like the other side of superhero. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Egotistical and sure and the losing of of the mission. Sure, sure. Uh, not really political though in the way no, that the Watchmen. No, were. Definitely. So, uh, I what is what do you call somebody that doesn't have undaunted? Do you call them daunted? Are they because they're the, pre daunted? Pre daunted? Okay, fair enough. So, for those of you that are pre daunted, we're big fans of the Undaunted series by Trevor Benjamin and David Thompson. It is now early access on Steam. If you want on, to try Undaunted Normandy, I already have. What do, What are your it, impressions? It is, it is very much a digital implementation of the board game. It is not a video game version of the board game. Sure. It does have little 3D figures, though. It, it does, but there's no big shooting animation. Sure. And mo- it's, it's very much... What, did you want like a, a, a cinematic no, no. close-up like in Sniper no. Elite? No, I'm, t- I, I'm just I, remembering I, Sniper Elite. Right. Oh, that's true. Like, slow motion. Yeah, zoom in. Yeah, it's like you no. can see frame by frame as the shell destroys the human flesh. Ugh. Yeah, it's like a five-minute scene. And then during that, that five-minute scene, all these windows will come in and tell you the history of this poor gentleman. That, yeah, and, no, the, the five-minute scene consists of four minutes and 30 seconds of that person bearing their soul to some interlocutor or maybe an interior monologue. And then a 30-second slowdown of a rifle shell uh, completely destroying their cranium. Sniper Elite. Sniper Elite. <laughs> so yes, I, I I very much enjoyed it. I went through mission very quickly. It takes mm-hmm. care of all the cards and sure and so and set up and and you're right into the game. You can play it uh, solo or against other people. So yeah, Undaunted Normandy early access on Steam. And lastly, uh, Nucleum. It's going to be a heavy Euro. It's going to be by Simone Luciani and David Turzi, and it will be out very soon. Looking forward to seeing it. The publisher, and this could just be lies from a publisher because publishers lie to us, has mentioned the B word in the context of this game, the B word being Barrage. Simone Luciani being one of the co-designers of Barrage, and this also being about power generation, so this could just be a superficial thematic connection, but those are big shoes to fill, suffice to say. Yes, players take the role of industrialists trying to succeed during the economic and technological boom of the 19th century. Whew. <laughs> yeah, it gives me the vapors. <laughs> <laughs> that is the news and why it doesn't matter. On to the feature game. Our feature game is Archeo Society by Paolo Mori, published by Space Cowboys. Some people call me Maurice, published this year. Paolo Mori's designs consist of many games of which we are big, big fans. Uh, he is perhaps best known for his pirate game Libertalia, which was originally published in 2012 and republished by Stonemaier Games in 2022. Our favorite vis- designs probably is Dogs of War, published in 2014. And then there was a two-player version published in 2019 called Blitzkrieg, World War II in 20 Minutes by PSC Games, also excellent. 
I also think for what it's worth, he designed one of the most interesting pandemic variants, along with Matt Leacock, Pandemic Fall of Rome in 2018. And perhaps most saliently for this discussion was a game he published with Simon again called Ethnos in 2017. And Archeo Society is a redevelopment of Ethnos. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does? Play or draw. Play, play or, or draw. In Archeo Society, play or draw. That's true. The flow is real. You're either drawing a card from the pool or the top of the deck, or you're playing a set of cards to your tableau. The set is either the same suit or the same color. And that is the first. And so for the first hook of the game is... After you've played that set, you have to discard the rest of the cards in your hand into the pool. Now, there are three idols shuffled into the bottom of the draw pile. And when the third one is drawn onto the second hook of the game, as soon as the third one's drawn, that game ends immediately. So all the cards in your hand are gone and the round ends and it's time to score. I don't know that the Gibbons would like us calling them idols. We should just call them monkeys. It's true. They might get jealous. It's their one time to shine. I guess I shouldn't have robbed them of that. (laughs) So the original version of Ethnos was themed around a very generic set of fantasy races that were involved in some kind of, um, what's a more polite, gentler term for race war? Um, Ethnic conflict? No, that's that's still bad. Ethnos, right? Yeah, no, but that's still bad. Ethnic conflict, bad. Um, Dispute based on heritage. Uh, anyway, and for whatever reason, I would just like to, to address this right off the bat. A lot of people found Ethnos very visually off-putting. They didn't like the card art. They didn't like the board, which is weird. The artwork was done by John Howe, which is a you know, very traditional sort of watercolor e. I don't know anything about art. Fantasy depiction of these. I thought the cards were, were yeah, fine. Well, I th- it might have been the disconnect between the cards and the board, because the board just looked like a, you know, Ultima 5th edition fair enough fair enough i will grant you that i did i did like those ridiculously stupid plastic tokens though yes (laughs) they stacked oh so nicely they stacked very very nicely and they were very very good to play with anyway uh so i had no problems with the artwork of ethnos i did find the theming not problematic but vaguely off-putting in terms of its presentation. I can't say, though, that Archeo Society improves on the theming in terms of being vaguely off-putting, because I can't help but feel like I'm an envoy from the uh, the British Museum involved in an international crime ring of stealing artifacts yeah. and then was, smuggling them back to... army of explorers and, and... Now, some of these individuals, like the patron, like the doctor, a variety of others, are people of color that seem to be indigenous to some of the places that we're going to. I'm still getting a colonialist vibe from what's going on in Archaeos Society. Again, I don't think this makes it the game problematic or objectionable necessarily. It just it, It's a little just a bit of a backdrop in terms of thinking that we might be involved in terrible, terrible crimes against humanity and heritage. So there's just three different ways you can play uh, this game. You can either do the advanced setup, which gives you like sort of preset decks. So what you what uh, this game, Archeo Society, there are 12 different characters. And in a given game, you're going to take six of them and they all come with their own decks. Sometimes they have very different number of cards. You take all six of those decks and you shuffle them all together. And that is going to be your game. So... The different ways you can play is they have, they'll tell you which decks to play, or you can do a draft setup where you, you know, draw some cards out and the players pick, or you can do it completely random, which I think would be a mistake, but we play the advanced setup every time because in this game, you all will, you also have tracks that you can go up and 
Because oh, dear Lord, they are tracks, aren't they? <laughs> they are tracks. <laughs> there are six tracks, in fact. And they say you should only have one, one, one flip to espe- it in advance. Unless you're doing the random setup where you could have all six mark if you wanted. Oh, my goodness. You see, you just pass around the, the tracks, and each player decides whether they want to put it on the advanced side or the basic side. Yeah, we didn't that, do that. That sounds good, right? No, it doesn't. No. Because... <laughs> <laughs> all of them except for maybe chip the third are going to choose the advanced side and we one of the reasons why we did the so-called advanced setup which is kind of like little scenarios was because in ethnos there was only the one way to play and that was random and i don't know why you ha- would have such misgivings about playing random works just fine i mean there's no particular combination of powers that's problematic oh, no. no with the with the 12 different characters there's no problem there but the random ah Yes, in conjunction the, with the special board. So, yes. yes. The special board is probably the biggest mechanical difference between Ethnos and Archeos Society because there have been some changes around the margins of some of the powers. Uh, there was a promo race in Ethnos that is almost impossible to find out called the Fairies, which was uh, a very take-that uh, kind of, of player power. But that So that's completely gone. But the other powers are mostly the same. You can see they're very, very recognizable. In many cases, they're completely unchanged. But the tracks are new. Instead of a map, you've got tracks, and there are these various thresholds to advance on the tracks. In order to advance on the red track, you need to play a set of two or more red cards, and then after that, three or more, and then after that, four or more. Or sometimes it's one, then three, then one, then two, then whatever. So that's a little bit all all over the map, uh, case depending. But we, as I said, always played with the recommended advanced setup, which is to have one special track. And the effects there are relatively minor. Agreed. So on top of that, like I said, you have to take all six of those decks, give them a good shuffle, so the shuffling's real, and <laughs> uh, then you get a starting pool of cards to choose from, which is a uh, number of cards plus two, so in a four-player game. Number of players, yeah. Number of players plus two would be six in a four-player game, and then you all, everyone starts with one card, and then it's play or draw, and you go around the table, and the game moves very quickly. It does. Another minor change from Ethnos is if the pool is completely gone... When you top deck, instead of taking one card, you take two. Mostly, I felt that this change was okay from a game flow perspective, but from a sort of fairness balance perspective, I didn't think it was great because it was mostly just random about who got that extra bonus card for a while. It doesn't last for very long because someone's going to play cards and repopulate the pool. So it felt a little arbitrary, but it does speed the game along, that's for sure. Not that it was ever particularly slow. (laughs) Another difference is in Ethnos, the rules for the 12 different uh, classes were printed on every card. In text. In text that you could just read. In this one, there are no, there's little symbols or sort of like weird iconography that maybe (laughs) you might be able to remember. And you'd think you'd have a player aid or something with, with 12 different things to try to remember, but no, it is just in the rule book. Well, they made it language independent. Space Cowboys is much more international and European focused than Simon is. I would also note that Space Cowboys managed to avoid any use of plastic. So it's all a cardboard custom insert, which is very, very functional, keeps all the 12 decks separated very, very nicely, but just with cardboard tabs and the player pieces, instead of being plastic are wood. Now, granted they've rediscovered new shades of Brown, so the six-player factions are all from a spectrum of white to black, and if they're not white and not black, they're all brown. Maybe one of them is arguably gray, but if you say, advance me, I'm brown, that's not going to help you most of the time. Yeah, and also the fact that all of the cards are all humans, right? Whereas in Ethnos, they're all very distinct, different races. Oh, and, that's true. And, and you can, and you'll, 
you can tell what they do. Ah, so. but the photographer is the one holding a camera and whose icon is a washing machine. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so we we've been shouting player draw because there is that decision every time it's your turn. And you have to decide whether or not you're going to draw another card and push your luck trying to get those bigger sets. Or are you going to bloat your hand because you have a maximum size of 10 cards. And when you finally get the cards that you need, you're going to give up all of the other cards for other people to choose from. So it's one of these things where it's like, well, I can give people what they want or I can just play the set that I have now. I really like that decision space. It is a very, very simple and yet tense decision. And that's one of the reasons why, on top of its flexibility of player count, that this game system, Ethnos or Archaeo Society, has been one of my go-tos for mixed company games night. You know those games that can go up to five or six really easily, that don't bog down, that a non-hobbyist gamer can play with very, very little difficulty, but a hobbyist gamer will also find enjoyable. Those games are worth their weight in gold, as far as I'm concerned. And Ethnos is absolutely one of those games, and Archeo Society has lost none of that simplicity. In point of fact, the most complicated rule in Ethnos is now gone. The one that people found the most difficult was, wait, do I get to put an influence marker here? It's like, if the set is bigger than the number of tokens you already have, it, what I already have or everyone already has, you already have. Okay, so I played the equal number. No, 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 it has to be bigger. Okay, I've got zero, so what do I... Anyway, simple rule, very simple rule, endless questions. I don't know why. Archeo Society has gotten rid of that rule, and so if anything, it is yet simpler. And as a consequence, it is the kind of thing that can get to the table very, very easily and accommodate lots of different groups. And the other, the other one that sometimes is a hurdle is the sort of how you play your sets, because you sort of have to have a leader, so it's sort of you because you can play all sorts of different characters in a set as long as they're all the same color and so people get confused they think okay well this red linguist can play be played with this red professor right and that red professor can then be played with this pink professor it's like no 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 they've all got to be red or they've all got to be linguists and, and then you designate a leader and that's the card that gives you the special ability so some right. that and it's a very small hurdle, and once you get through the first round, yeah, it, it flows very quickly. Yeah, and, and and going back to your original point, that fundamental decision point over the course of your turn, player draw, it's not this cumbersome turn structure where sometimes you get these relatively simple games that nonetheless load you with four or five different things you can do in your turn. You're constantly reminding people, okay, what can I do? Well, you can do this, you can do this, you can do this. No, no. You player draw, that's it. <laughs> and then... Once either two dragons or two monkeys have been drawn, there's this gigantic tension. Oh, yeah. Because you have this hand of cards, and at any time, someone could draw a monkey. And then there's this or sort of... Or dragon monkey. Or dragon monkey. And then there's sort of this group think. It's like, well, you know, we all have a lot of cards. Yep. And there's some cards in the pool. So maybe <laughs> everyone, should, everyone should just take the cards from the pool yep. so no one will draw the monkey, right? Right? Yep. And it's, it's very interesting and very fun. And again, for a game of such simple rule sets, Archeo Society does capture a lot of tension. A lot of, you know, it's it's surprising the amount of excitement around the table you can get of watching someone else draw a card from the top of the deck on their turn when two monkeys have already come out. It's marvelous. It's kind of like the same spectacle feeling you get with in Raw when you're out of the round and watching somebody play chicken with the chicken. And again, spectacle in Euro games is often thin on the ground. And so that's another reason why it's great with so many mixed crowds. I've seen lots of people, you know, 
the, they, they get called over by the chanting of player draw and they wander over to the ethnos table. And then once the two dragons come out, everyone, whether they're playing the game or not, is now very, very excited to see what's going to come off the top of the Very deck. invested. Yeah. And I like the fact that there's no end of game scoring. It's You play a number of rounds based on how many players, and then once that's done, it's just whoever has the most points. So let's talk about scoring, because I think that mechanically... It's not the biggest change, but in terms of overall play experience, it is the biggest change between Ethnos and Archaeos Society. Ethnos, you could score two different ways, largely speaking. Well, three if you count special powers. You play based on the you get points based on the size of the sets you've played, and you get points based on area majority scoring. I love area majority scoring. It wasn't done very well in Ethnos, I don't think, because in large player count games, you get these provinces where four, five, six people are competing. It gets very difficult to lock them down, and you're throwing a lot of effort to get a small number of points. If I'm playing a game of Ethnos, and I know that there's five or six people around the table, and I'm even remotely concerned about playing well, I'm, I'm often not, but I know that the way to get points is just play big sets and ignore everything else, and that's just the way to go. Well, big Flatly. sets big sets get you tokens out anyway. So. Well, but just be relatively indifferent as to where they're going. Yes. Play with dwarves, play with halflings. Those are, That's the way to go. But Ethnos had what we call um, player interaction. Exactly. Exactly. That's the problem. This, this is, well, not to the same extent as Lords of Ragnarok, but this is a situation where mechanically they've solved the problem, but in so doing, they've taken away a lot of the play experience, right? In Archaeo Society, there is no, next to no player interaction on any of the boards. Some of the advanced ones have a little bit of competition, but it's pretty much a rounding error overall. And you're just trying to match that next threshold to get the point value on the track. Doesn't matter whether you're last on the track or first, by and large. You know what you're going to score. And if Sally is two spots ahead of you on the track, you generally don't care. So, consequently... That feeling, that element of tension, that feeling of competition is completely gone. Now, the scoring then becomes more transparent, again, yet easier for new players, and it feels more balanced. I don't feel anymore like I'm at the whims of some weird table state, and if I'm playing against five other people at the table, I don't feel like I can ignore half the scoring conditions. I don't, I still don't know if it's a trade worth making. It's bizarre, because I'm sitting there, and it's like, this is... This is mechanically superior, but experientially inferior. And this happens all the time in game design. So they're interesting contrasts. Yeah, there's de definitely different balances that you can see they they tried to make. But do you agree about how it's, it's in terms of balance, preferable, but oh, it, for it, sure. it feels a little off? Yeah, because the... Even, even so, they even had the, the fact that there was random scoring tokens that came out, and some provinces were so out of kilter than right. the others. It even threw it off that much more. That's a good point as well, yes. But the fact that the Archeo Society market doesn't have an orc board. There's no orc <laughs> board mark. This orc is just a verbal tick that has, or that has basically taken over our local group. We enjoy saying orc board. And so in any context where we can, we don't have an orc board anymore. Instead, we have a little museum where we can show off little artifacts, like a little turtle standing on his beak, at least the way I play it. Yeah, it's not as good as an orc board. And... 
it just seems there's a lot more open in Arceo society to play very small sets, you know, to get yourself, which makes it kind of more interesting in some ways, you know, to get yourself up the first few steps of the track. And the fact that there's some tracks that give you negative points and, and you're really pressed hard to, to, you know, get those other sets out. So you get out of the negatives and into positives. Yeah. So some of that is, is, is interesting. To be fair, some of the tracks are, as you say, interesting, like the ones that go from high values to then a negative value, then to high values again. And the threat, the, the initial step between the high value to a negative value is a single card set. But then to get to a positive value again, you have to play a large set, like three or four, sometimes even more. And then there are interesting tracks that are 0.0.0.0 points, large number of points. Then there are the boring ones, like one, two, three, four, five points, and so on and so forth. So yeah, some interesting stuff happens in the tracks. But as I say, I I, I wish there were a combination of both games, right? Yes. I want the theming of Ethnos. I want the I, I I want the the modern graphical design of Archeo Society. I want the text of Ethnos, and I want the player interaction of Ethnos, and I want the scoring balance of Archeo Society. Now. This is not the kind of case where, like Lords of Ragnarok, I look at the new version and say, ugh, why bother? Go back to the original one. Nor is this a case where I think I'm going to be frustrated by either version. My plays of Archeo Society have been great. Yes. My observations about how it suffers in comparison to Ethos is more like, oh, this is interesting insofar as it is better in some ways and worse than others. So at this point, one of them is in print and one of them ain't. <laughs> if you've got your Ethnos... You can probably stick with your ethnos and only get Archeo Society if you really, really, really want to play around with those changes. Yeah, and subtle I've, I've, looked, I've looked on the forums and people are already Im- implementing some of the new rules in their ethnos games, like the draw two cards when there's no pool, sure, and, and stuff like that. So, absolutely, this is uh, this, this is a case where this is a very attractive, serviceable, workable new edition of an out of print game that is very, very, very flexible. And very useful to have in a collection if you're the kind of person that needs those things. It's great for all different kinds of groups, and it's a great experience. I'm very glad it's back in print, and I'm only very, very, very slightly chagrined that there is not some sort of perfect omnibus version that has all the strength of both. I'm not frustrated, just a tiny bit disappointed. No, it is a game that hits that very, very sweet spot of high player count because it is so easy to teach. And when you have a large group of people, it sometimes is hard to, you know teach a semi difficult game this is player draw there is like i said a lot of front loading with all the different special abilities of the cards but i'm sure there'll be printable player aids out soon or hand around the rule book they're luckily they're on the back thank goodness but anyway easy to teach quick to play great game so that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So We're Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we would love to hear from you. You can find all our contact information at sowronggames.com slash contact. We read everything you send and we'll get back to you if we can. There's a ton, tons of great and useful information and also useless information on the website as well. Merch, introduction to the Swag Extended Universe, a glossary for all the strange terms we use. So thank you again for spending time with us. We hope to see you again soon. Please do take care. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bicken. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.